Good morning, everyone. Uh, you may notice uh, that I am not Rabbi Amy Bernstein. Rabbi Amy Bernstein is totally fine. I know that sometimes when I sub, the first question is, is Rabbi Amy okay? Rabbi Amy is totally fine. Uh, she is going out of town today. And so and I actually she might have already left to go out of town. Um, and so it was just uh, crazy logistics to try to get this in at the same time. So I get the opportunity to work with all of you and, and learn with all of you. Uh, that being said, uh, I will teach the same thing tomorrow. So do not feel that it is. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I'll teach something else tomorrow for those of you who want to come both days. But uh, we're in uh, another exciting week of Torah study. And so I thought I would note that this is an extra interesting week before we even jump into content, because especially as Torah studiers or those who wrestle with our text on a triennial basis, which is what this course does, right? Amy's weekly study follows the triennial. And we know that this is the what? What year in the triennial are we on right now? We're in the first year of the triennial. Now, here's the only complication with the first year of the triennial. When it comes to a week where we have a double portion, what do you end up studying? Do you study the first third of each portion or you study one third of the entire double portion? Uh, Both is always the right answer. Uh, But no, today we will be studying exclusively inside of Bihar. But I want to note that one looking at Bihar, we we have a second portion. We have Bahukotai. And so the reason I say it's complicated is not that it's a double portion. It's that it's only a double portion here. For instance, Israel splits them up and we end up off from Israel for a good amount of time. In fact, I believe we are not on the same week of Torah as Israel. And uh, I know we have we have at least Barry here who can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe today is the day that we break off from Israel's uh, Torah cycle and we don't come back together until the beginning of Deuteronomy which means there's an entire book of our Torah that we're going to study on a different week. And the whole point of Torah study is supposed to be that we all study the same thing. So there's a complication there. And the reason that we don't have a straight answer is because, again, if you're working on a triennial, but you're in Israel, some years you'll have a connection and some years you won't. Some years you'll do one third of each of these portions and some years you'll just do this larger piece. Uh, oof, why do Jews have different opinions? Um, no, they're different for a few reasons. One is that no, actually it's because the American Jewish experience outside of the recon and the reform movement where they've moved towards today, a lot of the Jewish experience re- believes in a second day of Hagim, right? So if Passover is eight days and, Sh- and Sukkot is eight days and Shavuot is two days and, uh, every one of the holidays has this extra day. If that falls on a weekend, we have to do a holiday Torah portion. But in Israel, if it's a one day, then they would be done with that holiday and they would go back to their regular Torah portion. And so every year, more or less, this happens once uh, because just the amount of different holidays that we have and the way that the schedule ends up working. And so this is where they break off differently. Um, there is a more extensive explanation than that, but that's kind of the on one foot version of it. So we will be studying Bahar Buhukotai today, and we're in the first year of the triennial, which means that we are studying predominantly the text of Bahar. In fact, we're getting like 80 of the way percent through Bahar. The second year triennial is like the end of Bahar and the beginning of Buhukotai, and then the third year is just Buhukotai. So who can tell me something about the Torah portion of Bahar? It's okay if not. It's actually... Once I started, like, oh, yeah. You see, Bahar 
is when we learn about our um, our, uh, our Shemitah and our Jubilee years. So our Shemitah year, which is on the seventh year of cycle, the land will rest. And our Jubilee year, which is our um, after the 49th year that we'll have this special year. So I want us to kind of take a look at this text and really start to understand what is it that the text was implying we would do. And the question I want us to ask is, is this even possible? Like, I'm going to give you that prompt right now as we're looking at it. Let's figure out, could the Jubilee have even happened? Because the rabbis actually speculate that it didn't. It was in the text. It should have happened. It was, it was in there to be part of the rules and regulations. And the rabbis go, I don't know how this is going to work. And so they add a bunch of rules in and they wrestle with it a lot. And they actually try to create an understanding of how the Jubilee would happen. So let's go through and figure out why that is the question at hand. Let's take a little bit of a look. I'm going to share my screen for a moment so we can read a couple lines of text. I'm going to put it up here, but we're at right at the beginning of chapter 25 in Leviticus. So now let's look at the beginning of these lines. Again, I'll give you the general understanding. We are going to have to create breaks inside of our calendar. We're going to have to make sure that everything, not just the, the Israelites, everything has a Shabbat, which means we have to figure out a way for land to have Shabbat and economic structure to have Shabbat. And that's a kind of obscure thing to think about. So let's kind of dive into it. Let's start right here. Yes. Sorry. Why is it called Bahar? Because I know it means that means on the mountain. So why is this section called? So um, so there's a few really important things to know about naming portions. We as rabbis are very good at what we call the drosh, right? The explanation. And there is generally an implied sense of elevation to at least why that word was chosen. But the simplest answer in every week's Torah portion is that in the first line of text, if you look right here, the word Bahar is right here, Bahar. So it means that on the mountain, Moses spoke these words. Now, you would think, yeah, he spoke a lot of words on a mountain. So it seems a little odd that this is the one. I actually think that's intentional that the rabbis are trying to say this is really core information about how to preserve the the soul and ethics and feel of a community. And so how would you elevate that? The people care about Mount Sinai. We haven't called something that yet. Let's call it Bahar so that we know it was given and said from this elevated space. But that's a drosh, right? I, I can't say with certainty. What I know with certainty is every single Torah portion's title comes from the first line of that text. So God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, speak to the Israelite people and say to them, when you enter the land, I assign to you, the land shall observe a Shabbat of Adonai. Six years, you may work on the land. Six years, you may prune the vineyards and you may gather the fields. You may do the work and use this work, this land. But on the seventh year, the, the land will have a complete Shabbat, a Shabbat of God, and you will not touch the fields and you will not work them, and you will let them truly have a rest. You shall not reap the aftergrowth of your harvest. It will be a complete year of rest. So you might even say, okay, I won't farm. But if I do a good job for six years, I'm going to get the land really nutrient-rich, in which case, a little bit of rain, a little bit of sunshine, I should still yield, I don't know, 30 40% of the same crop, and then at least I can make something. And this says, no, you may not touch any of it for sale. 
So who can read for me lines six, seven, and eight? You may eat whatever the land during its Sabbath will produce, you, your male and female slaves, the hired and bound laborers who live with you and your cattle and the beasts in your land may eat all its yield. Okay. So what is this saying? You can eat whatever you want from the land. You can't sell any of it. You can't use any of it for economy, but you can feed your family. We're not, the text isn't crazy. It's not like starve for the year. You can eat off the land. And again, six years of being careful and caring for your land, your seventh year will reap a harvest, but not enough for economy, just enough for your family and others to eat. And then it says that all of your cattle and your beasts, everything on your property, all of your ownership can eat from the land. That's not a problem but you cannot use that for your work. And then you should count off seven weeks of years, seven times seven years. So that's the period of seven weeks of years gives you a total of 49 years. Where do we know this number seven from? Creation, Shabbat. It's a pretty popular number in Judaism. And where else do we see 49 in Judaism? Counting the Omer, which we're in right now, right? Because you do seven weeks of seven weeks between Pesach and Shavuot. And so here the our text says this is a expanded version of that. And that's something I've always loved about Judaism. If you really look at the way in which we design calendar, a lot of what we have is concentric circles that get smaller and smaller, right? A lot of the different uh, notions, ideas, philosophies inside of our tradition can go all the way down to inside the home and expand all the way out to societal. And one of the ways we know that, and we know that we're not just going a little too far with creative licensing when it comes to the world of rabbinics, is this. If our text can tell us that the land and the animals and our employees and everyone deserves a Shabbat, And even further, then to say seven weeks of seven years, meaning 49 years of working inside a land, you'll have a total of 49 years. And on the 50th year, on Yom Kippur, a special horn will be blown. Now, anyone know why that's such an interesting thing? Do we blow shofar on Yom Kippur? Only at the end. We don't blow shofar during Yom Kippur. because. It is the Shabbat of Shabbats, right? It's it's supposed to be this day that gets all the same observance and restriction of Shabbat. And then on top of it, now we blow shofar for Rosh Hashanah, but that's specifically part of its yearly design. But on this year, on the 50th year, you would blow it. Think about that. Put yourself into the life of the Israelites for a moment. Let's say you were born on year one of this cycle. You are 49 years old. And on the 50th year, and you've done 49 Yom Kippur, and you know this system down pat, you know the, the, the things that are familiar, and on the 50th year, on a day that's always quiet, the loud blast in the middle of the day. That would be jarring, and you would certainly know that it was different, and you would certainly know whatever's coming next is unique. And so you'd, you'd sound this uh, horn, and on that 50th year, it would be a jubilee year. Now, I know I've gone through a lot of lines of text. Bear with me. We're just about to the point of discussion now. On that 50th year, you will be released from all of your obligation. It is a jubilee year. All of the holdings will be returned to the rightful owners. What are they talking about? They're talking about land. They're talking about loans of money. They're talking about 
everything that is allowed for an economy to flourish on the 50th year, it resets. Now, you start fresh. There's a few things worth noting here. When they're talking about things like the land shall return to your family, they're talking about tribal-wise. If you remember in the upcoming weeks of Torah, as we go into the book of Numbers, we're going to start to see division of what the different tribes will get, what they'll do, what part of the economic structure they'll be in. So you got a piece of land, let's say. 49 years later, on the 50th year, that land returns to your tribe and someone else gets that land. Okay, that's hard enough to think about for a second because it's your livelihood. So you know, start over. But the rabbi's argument is, yeah, someone else got a bad piece of land and you got 49 years with your good piece of land. And now the way to keep the economy balanced would be someone else gets the land. There's a beautiful notion to it, but go further. Loans. The rabbis believe that all financial loans need to be returned as well on the Jubilee year. Again, first glance, kind of love it. I'm, I got some student debt. I would love to figure out how much longer before a Jubilee. That would be great. I mean, in some ways, it would really be great because that next year, suddenly I wouldn't have that debt there. I would probably go spending a bunch of money, in which case it would go pump back into the economy. We don't have to get into a full economic conversation here. But there is, there is, there's, there's whole kinds of policy on what would happen if debt was relieved. What would we see from it? Would we see expenditure? And we even saw a little bit of that on a different scale during COVID and with, and, uh, with relief checks, right? And so there's this idea of what would happen. But then there's speculation. Here's the problem. If you're the bank, who's giving out a loan past year, like what, 40, maybe? Maybe you do it until 40 because you're like nine years of collecting a loan. I'm not giving you as big of a loan. Who is going to give you money if they know, like everyone's going to go and ask for loans in year 45, right? No, I promise I'm good for it, right? Like who is going, what? And the rabbis say, well, something has to give, right? Something has to happen, but their their concern is very fair. Who is going to give a loan out if it has to be reset? So now go to that first question. Is this possible? Could this happen? I, I By the way, I'm not, this isn't a trick question. Is this a possible thing to do? Half of it seems really beautiful. The idea of allowing your land to rest on the seventh year makes tremendous amount of sense. In fact, today in the agricultural world, we often have a rotation and someone will not till their entire land. They will only till part of their land so that they don't overwork it. Because if you farm your land every single year with this intensity and this focus, what will you do to your land? You'll strip it of its nutrients. So there is a notion of that. But as I'm reading this, in the seventh year, in the 49th year, the land's rested. Uh-huh. And now in the 50th year, it's going to rest again. Uh-huh. So it's not being worked for two years. Mm-hmm. That seems to be another problem. There seems to be another problem here. How are we possibly going to do this with two full years of rest? Which is, again, why our tradition speculates Shemitah, very possible. In fact, difficult, but possible. On the seventh year, you don't work your land. Well, what does that mean you have to do? That means A, you have to be a good business person and you have to, in your first six years, be implementing plan and structure and strategy to weather that seventh year. That is possible. That is not unheard of. In fact, that's decently common when it comes to uh, strategy of business right? Oh, this is not going to be a growth year for us. We're going to reinvest everything in this, whatever. Jubilee 
Jubilee is a different story. Shemitah, possible. Jubilee, questionable. Yeah. No, what, why not? I'm suggesting an alternate system. Why not? Why not just, um, instead of it being a collective jubilee, like I took out this loan and 49 years later, like it, the start date is your date. Like when did I start farming this land? Do you know what I mean? It doesn't, it makes a little bit of, a little more sense if it's on an individual case by case. By the way, we have that in this country already. Forget wanting to get into politics of, of argument when it comes to our economy. We have a loan forgiveness program. If you go into nonprofit or medical work or military work and you have a substantial loan, if you pay the minimum that they require for 10 straight years, the rest of your loan is forgiven. There, we have that program. We have, we, we have a paid, paid loan forgiveness program. So it's the collective nature that, that is sort of. That's not for everyone, by the way. I, again, but, but yes, there is. So given people's lifespans, then it's unlikely. It's even unlikely that you'll experience, well, depending on when you're born, you might, you're probably only going to experience once or maybe not at all. Yeah. If, if, if at all at this time, people would be experiencing one Julie. You know, there's an, another problem that occurs to me. This doesn't make much biological sense to, uh, uh, work with the land for 49 years, uh, it's going to get depleted long. Well, no, long that land, that. that land will get its pause every six. They'll, every they'll have, it'll, it'll have its Jubilee year. Oh, I'm mean, sorry. It'll have its Shemitah year. You'll get seven Shemitah. And after the seven Shemitah, it's, by the way, it still doesn't make much ecological sense for what you said. On the seventh year, you already had a year of rest. You already got a year where you got 30, 40% of your crops just by nature of the fact that so much seed and nutrient had fallen in. But what about year 50? Two years in a row of not working the land, two years in a row of pausing the economy, because back then the whole economy was agriculture. People weren't making money. They were trading goods. So everyone had what they needed. Two years of pausing that is a long time. You know, even even seven years or six years in a, in a, in a fallow year uh, doesn't make a lot of sense uh, in that way. Um, it's uh, generally speaking, the land will be depleted in three years if it's not if it's not uh, carefully fertilized or uh, crops rotated in such a way that a natural fertilization occurs. Right. So, um, would it be the case that instead of talking about uh, individuals, we're talking about tribes, and that uh, the land is used? Uh, much more along the lines of the medieval three field system. So the the way in which our tradition understands it is that in fact, no, they, they are working the same land, but again, we don't know if there is at least some implication of they were doing their own rotation of space to make sure that at least a quadrant wasn't being used or anything else. But the idea is they, they, they worked their land for their seven years and on their eighth year, uh, sorry, for six years, and on their seventh year, they, they took that rest. Any other questions so far? Yeah. What do, the poor do? what do the poor do on the year that nothing's, no farming is happening? So there is always going to be a certain setup of, um, of going in and taking the corners of the land, which you guys also know from other, from other Torah that we've, that we've studied, right? So, we know that there is a opportunity to still get what they need. They just, there'll be less of it. I saw your hand go up. Yeah. So sorry. 
He likes getting the jogging in. It's like my steps earlier. Don't worry. Uh, what you said, Judith, made me think that, like, in some ways, the like the poor might be the people whose lives are changed the least because they are already people who are participating less in the economy, and everyone else is trying to figure out how to live their lives without being able to sell and buy things. And I wonder. I haven't totally thought out the argument for like this is totally possible and we should do it. But I do think it like is asking us to reshape how we think about what our lives are for because it puts such hard limits on how much a person can accumulate and that like maybe our lives are for something that's not just the accumulation of land and money. Well, so by the way, that that's a big part of the, that's a big part of the mic drop of it, right? Like the rabbi's whole point is you need to get past your own individual experience piece of this. This is how an economy, this is how an entire society can calibrate. Because if you look at it on a 500 year scale, 10 times, they're going to shuffle up and reshuffle. And if everyone is working more specifically for providing resource to their community than they are for making sure they have for their, for themselves, ostensibly in those 50 years, you'll also see who are the most talented farmers, which families have got better, uh, are yielding better product, uh, all these different pieces. So you will be giving everyone a chance at some point. Also, theoretically, everyone is also experiencing hardship. And, and so there's, 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 it's kind of the same conundrum when we talk about people like the highest ranks of the military, you'll often hear things like they're just playing a game of chess, right? They're not thinking about the lives. They're just playing a game of chess, which I've, I've always, I was kind of a dismissive and unfair thing to say, but I do understand the, the kind of the analogy they're trying to explain, which is when you're thinking strategically globally, you're losing the opportunity to think about the individual in that very moment. And I think the rabbis are trying to be global in this moment and say, what is a system that we can use to do this hard reset? Yeah. Is this still being done in Israel? Is it observed? I know it's not here. Shemitah or Jubilee? Jubilee. There are not that many Jewish farmers in this country anyway. Well, I, I would, I would, I would go as far as to argue that the react, that the chances are that there are more people trying to do Shemitah. I don't know. There is no, there is no social structure that is doing a Jubilee. Are there people who are utilizing the idea of a Jubilee to do some things? Yeah. I mean, I read a couple of weeks ago and I shared it with uh, those in our Tikkun Olam committee that there was a church that raised $15,000 and bought $3 million of medical debt. Because you can do that, evidently, in this country. You can just buy medical debt and then go through and collect on that debt, and that's a business in itself. But what the church did was they bought that medical debt, and they burned it for the Jubilee. This idea of relieving debt, right? They took this exact Torah, this exact piece of text, and they necked. Now, that doesn't mean it's being observed. It means it's being honored or recognized, and I do love that. No, I don't think any society ever actually did Jubilee for exactly what we're talking about for a few different things for the fact that I don't know how you survive if you do two solid years. Again, I guess our, uh, the book of Exodus would say otherwise because they claim that Egypt made it seven years of famine, but 
I don't know how you survive with two straight years of of uh, an absolute stall on on farming. And I don't know how you get anyone to agree to give loans if they know they're going to lose the money. I mean, I guess maybe if you had like a state sponsored program where all the people who made loans were made whole from it. But like in that case, I think you're like one step away from the state just being like, forget it, we'll be the bank. Right. And that way they can reset. Like I, I'm, I'm unclear if they ever could have pulled this off. Having grown up in Texas and with grandparents who were farmers, they had regular periods where they would let certain parts of the land lie fallow, but not a regular. Right. Like I was saying, it was a right. Um, jubilee kind of idea. And they did it always keeping part of the fields working, part of the crops growing so that they always had a, a cash crop to work right. with. And this is on the seventh year, don't touch it. Because of Shabbat, because of this micro, we're going to pass the mic that way, by the way. Yeah, the, the practicality of the yeah. practicality of Jubilee is clearly there is none. But I wonder if we could talk about progressive taxation in our current uh, life as attempting to spread the wealth. I mean, well, by the way, nothing in Torah is pointless. So when we look at this and say, why are we getting 25 lines on a Jubilee? And no matter how hard I try to wrap my mind around this idea, we, we can't make it work. And I think it's, again, the rabbis are trying to be very, not the rabbis, the writers of, this, of our text are trying to be very clear. And then the rabbis take that and they run with it. Because when you go into rabbinic literature, there is a lot on Jubilee. Because they, they want to make it work. But more than that, they want to emphasize the point that the priority of Jubilee matters, Right finding a way to economically balance. And and for what it's worth, in Jubilee, there's a psychology that's really interesting here. This is not the fear of socialism, communism, everyone's going to make the exact same amount of money and there's going to be no capitalistic drive here. That's not Jubilee. They're saying 49 years, run with it. See what you can accomplish. See what you can do. And on the 50th year, by the way, are they saying that if you've made money, you lose it? No, if you've done really well and you've saved and been creative, if you made loans in year one and got your full paybacks, like you don't need to give your money away. But on the 50th year, we're going to we're going to reshuffle the deck. And if you get dealt another good hand, then good luck. You have another 50 years to make great money. And if you got dealt an okay hand, I'm so glad you saved. Like this system is not saying everyone must get the exact same amount. The rabbis in some way see that our text says, there is something to uh, effort and and and, uh, and and an economic structure in which you can work as hard as you can and the potential of earning will come with it. They're not against that. They're just saying every 50 years, we're going to reshuffle the deck so that just in case someone else had good work ethic but didn't get dealt a good hand, then we'll see them rise up. That's essentially what the rabbis extract from this piece. They extract that it's a reshuffling of opportunities. And if done right, every single family should at some point have the opportunity to do that. And that will inevitably balance and and do so in a way that doesn't take away the human need for there to be reward to the work. Yeah. Yeah, but okay. This is 
I, get, I guess we'd have to talk more about how the rabbis justify this. But if this is kind of a metaphor, which is what you're saying, that it's impractical, I think that's what you're saying, and that it sort of means something else. Why not just say something else? Like why, you know, it's a very roundabout way of, of, um, of, of expressing yourself. Don't you think? I mean, just say what you want to, you know, like, it just seems weird. It, see, it seems like they sort of, you have to sort of partially believe that, that we, that, that this was a system that someone tried at some point. It's, it's just, um, it's just, a, it's, a, it's, um, it seems a little roundabout way of expressing yourself. Uh, yeah. The thing that we're getting stuck on is that it's not practical, but they clearly like set this out this way to your point like if it was going to be another way just right the other way i wonder if it's something that they are seeing as i mean the same way that we've talked about like in the mishkan and like all sorts of things that they're imagining what their life is going to be in the land of israel if this is a thing that they are aspiring to rather than like recording having happened thoughts lord spoke to moses on mount sinai bahar not sure it's meant to be aspirational I think your interpretation before from a reconstruction point of view was fabulous, but I'm not sure we can say the text itself is that we're reading the Torah. But why is Torah not aspirational? Well, but it's describing, it says you shall. It doesn't say, yeah, that's true. It doesn't, it says you shall. So if you don't, you're violating Torah. Sure. We're in the triennial. You guys are sneaking into Bahuko Tai right now, right? Now, what we would see, by the way, I'll give you that little sneak preview. And we'll go back into this piece of triennial because I, by the way, I'm notoriously bad about ignoring the triennial, but I'm trying really hard. So I'm only going to break character for a moment here, which the Bahuko Tai goes into this. It goes into this. If you follow my rules, life is going to be pretty good. And if you don't follow my rules, you're going to suffer for it, which has its own whole set of theological implications and we don't even need to wrestle with today. But I think there is something that we needed to, to separate here. I think the entirety of the text can be aspirational, even if the text implied voice is obligatory, right? And the reason I think that is because I don't think it was ever doable. And I think they knew it. And I think also, by the way, when you read about the Mishkan and you read, and yes, some people say it's a mistranslation, but we're talking about dolphin skins and like what they were, they were slaves in Egypt. Even if they had time to go find some dolphin skins, where did they store them? Why did no one else take them? They would have been super cool and interesting. Like there's no way some of these things were doable. So I actually think there's hints of the aspirational side of this throughout our text. And what our text is saying is, can you reach these levels? Can you always be striving for one step more, not grand, but elevated and and um, and have that kind of context? So I do think that the playfulness of deliberate messaging and aspirational intention is something that our tradition does quite frequently. But I think also we have to ask ourselves, like, you know, where's where's it all coming from? So I, I did I did some reading in anticipation of today, and there's a text that I often like to read, which is the weekly Torah Sparks that comes out of the conservative movement's uh, yeshiva in Jerusalem. And uh, la, two years ago, uh, a writer named Alana uh, Kershon wrote that uh, some really interesting things that I want to share with you, right? That Parshat Bahar begins with this juxtaposition of laws, 
that we know of, of the sabbatical and jubilee years. First, the Torah teaches us that every seven years during the Shemitah, the land will be allowed to lie for a Shabbat. And next, we're told that every 50 years, we're going to have a jubilee. And we went over this. And the Parsha then moves on afterwards to teach that if a kinsman or a brother or someone from their uh, area is in a dire financial strait, we're obligated to let the individual live by our side without charging any interest or taking any advantage of that person in that moment. Taken together, these verses uh, have a lot to teach about the cyclical nature of life's impact and the way that we relate to the less fortunate. And this is where I find it really interesting. The first question she asks is, why do the laws governing the treatment of the poor follow the laws governing the cycle of the years? Like everything's intentional in Torah. So why is it that order when we're building it up? And she says, perhaps an answer can be found in the justification for the Jubilee. God tells Moses that the land may not be sold in perpetuity. See, here's the most important piece that we haven't talked about yet. The reason the land resets every 50 years and goes back to your tribe is your tribe doesn't even own it. God owns it. The reason that you do a Shemitah is because you don't own this land. God does. And God insists that everything has a Shabbat. And therefore, on the seventh year, you must give the land a Shabbat. Why? Because it's not even yours. You're borrowing it. It's God's. And by the way, when you ask about the implicant, uh, impl- implementing this in Israel, little hints are done. Like, for instance, I went to school at Hebrew Union College. Hebrew Union College has a, a campus in Jerusalem. It's right between the David Citadel and the King David Hotel. I mean, it's about as fabulous as land can get. But we bought the land in 1963. Anyone know what that area was like in the 60s? It was a border. because. We didn't have the old city. And so Jerusalem leased the land for 99 years because A, they thought no one wants this land. Like it was not a great land. Because again, it wasn't like Israel was super warm and welcoming to liberal Judaism at that time. I mean, more so than other spots, but like certainly there was some pushback about opening this space, but it wasn't great land. And then like a little while longer afterwards, it became fantastic land. But Why is that still a little bit of a problem and something worth noting? We're 60 plus years into that lease. They don't own the land. They've built up on it. They've built a tremendous amount of infrastructure, but that land will return to the state. And so that is something that has been borrowed at different times in the land is that Jerusalem, a lot of Jerusalem is on 99 year loans or, or, or leases, if you will, because the land should not belong to. Now that's changing and there's a lot to be kind of sifted out in that, but that's a big piece of this. So God owns the land and that all the land that belongs is ultimately God's. It's temporary custodian is the people who have it in that moment. But what is true of the land is true of all the property as well. Nothing that is ours is guaranteed to be ours forever. This is where it starts to come down to something important, including our bodies. But for here, it also includes the people who work the land for us, the animals that like here, we still have There's still the idea of indentured servitude, and even they are required to have Shabbat, not just weekly Shabbat, given the whole year off for the Jubilee year. Like, it's not even just don't work the land, go think of another business in that time. It's the people who do that can't do it, period. And so there is 
there's something really interesting here. And so then once you've had those lines to then get into how you care for the less fortunate, what are the two main reasons to be doing this? A, it is obligated that we care for our community. The rabbis are showing this by ex, uh, by extracting the idea of Jubilee and saying in their further interpretation that every, that the reason for this reset is that everyone needs to get this idea to be getting a new hand every 50 years or so and seeing if you can have different luck from the different hand that you're dealt. Also, it's, it's the ethically right thing to do. And so right after being reminded that all the financial success you feel is borrowed, now you're reminded that those who aren't in that same kind of luck, you have an obligation to care for them. Yeah. I think like a lot of things that we have in the Torah that seem to inspire a Jewish mentality, this this does too, because it makes people think, what can I do to to change my life every seven years because I can't keep doing what I'm doing for the next hundred years? You know, the family can't just keep doing over and over and over. It inspires some kind of um, um, creativity, really, that an entire economy needs to keep changing because people will keep having to find new ways to make a living. So you can't be an absolutely agricultural society. It encourages forward thinking in a way. Well, I certainly think it, I think it helps with societal progress too. Yeah. Progress. Yeah. But I think the rabbi's main focus, and I, and we're going to get into it in a second because even Talmud looks at it, is this like, uh, this mutual ability, this like kind of evening out of, of fortune and opportunity throughout the society. I, I, I like the concept of aspirational, which goes back to the basic concept of free will, not counting nature and nurture for all of us, but that it allows for choice. And if you get to, it's like the rest that we, we want it to come from Torah, but we can reinterpret it for our individual selves to help make it a better society uh, with opportunities. Lisa's original point of, of the, the re replacing, uh, Giving people equal opportunity. And back in the old days, when I grew up, the public education was the equal opportunity. Uh, now it's not so much. Uh, but I think that the individual interpretation of this is to help the poor, uh, and not just greed. Yeah. Sorry. But, okay. So here, in terms of law, like, that there's some kind of hierarchy of laws. Isn't, isn't this a, this is a, this is a law, right? So this is, this goes along with a lot of the laws that we observe as Jews. So why, how, how can we get to, how, how can we get to take this law and say this, well, this one's aspirational. It's too hard to do. And other things we take. Um, no, no, this is what it says. How many this commandments are there? 613. Apparently. You counted? I'm sorry. No. 613. Okay, we can get there. Maimonides is a pretty creative writer. Well, is one law more important than another? So, well, how many of those laws are actually doable? <laughs> Probably. Okay. What else is no longer? Okay, so this is in the not doable category. There is a lot of lies that are specifically only applicable in an agricultural-based economy in the land of Israel. So there is already a couple hundred laws of our 613 that 
we cannot do. So the question becomes, why are they there? Why do they get like, and so, so I actually think again, you're asking the same question that Neil, you asked before when you proposed that if Torah is aspirational, then it shouldn't be directional in the same way. But I actually think you're still circling around the same idea. Part of this is, 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 uh, what's the right word for it? It's like immersive teaching. Rather than just tell you the philosophy of something, you have to kind of experience it. You have to kind of feel what the requirement and the structure and the obligation and the direction would be, even if you can't pull it off. And 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 the rabbis say this is so important that they're not only going to just note that it's in Torah and they're not going to edit Torah, right? The rabbis are certainly not going to say, let's cut this out of Torah. But I can prove the rabbis care because they spend half of Baba Batra 11 talking about this. They go even further on something they know cannot happen, and they dive in deeper. Why? Because they're going to use the law to imply the intention of the law and not the depth of infrastructure of that law. Um, You said before that, and it's obvious that Jubilee is not practiced. It it just can't be done. But did you say if Shemitah is still practiced in in, I mean, since it's an every seven year thing, there are some people who have attempted it. There are some groups that find it's important. And there's some people who just extract the intention of that law and, and do take certain break or reprieve. And by the way, this is the same notion as a sabbatical. Right. This is literally from the same root, the same words, right? Like sabbatical, Shabbat, the Shemitah year, all of this is from the same notion. That like, you need to take a break from it. If you are a good philosopher, you're supposed to have a sabbatical year. Why? Because you did such good work in six years? No, that's the way we treat it today, which is kind of a little problematic. The original intention of a sabbatical was not a privilege, right? It was your job is your brain. You have to be producing thought and intellect and perspective. And if we don't give you a year to let the harvest just grow wild, then we're not going to get good info from you in the next six The original idea of sabbatical was not a privilege. It was like, go learn new things so you don't bore us at some point. So you have a chance to explore and 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 find new truth in this world and then bring it back to us. So is it manifest in Israel in other professions other than agriculture? I mean, they apply it. Some small communities, my in some small way, but I, there is no like full on community that is taking in a complete pause from economic stimulation for an entire year. No, no, no. The, the, first of all, the kibbutzim, ugh, it makes me sad. They're not a kibbutz anymore. They're farms and, but they, they've split up their economy and they've done a lot of that stuff and they might pause from the farming, but their other industries are going to keep going. Like they might follow this and say, give the land the rest. But the rest of the intentionality has kind of been lost. Kind of. I can tell you in the rabbinic world, it is a negotiation power now. It is not a given. And by the way, I think for a lot of professors too, I think it really depends on the institution. A lot of times they also call it a sabbatical for three months or for two months or whatever it might be. So a lot of sabbaticals have an, no, a lot of sabbaticals have an obligation of a book. It's not even a joke. It's an obligation. When I, there's rabbis who did get every seven years, but it was an obligation that they were working on a book that would be published the year after that sabbatical. Rabbi, I think we're also looking at law from our perspective. And from my understanding, the law that we practice in this country, Neil would certainly know this, 
to, to correct me, we practice a law of rights that's from English common law. And the Torah and the laws that we see there are a matter of responsibility. And there's a vast difference in those two concepts of the law. Yeah, we're not talking about rights in our text. We're talking about what we have to be doing. Uh, David, I do see your digital hand up as well. So if you could please unmute. Daniel, thank you. Um, Maybe you covered this, but one of the things that perplexes me is that why do we assume that Shemitah is collective as opposed to individual and the same for Jubilee? It's not said there. If you looked at it as individual obligation, it makes sense. The banks could make 48-year loans and the system would work. But it there's nothing that says it has it can't be looked at individually. No, certainly. And by the way, a hundred percent I think our text is implying that they are not forcing sweeping regulation. They're creating an infrastructure and you're gonna live inside of it. But if I am finally of the age where I can start my own business or buy my own home and it happens to be year 42 in the cycle, no one's gonna give me a loan large enough to pull it off. So you're right. They can only give a 48-year loan, but because it was an, an entire societal jubilee year, it would affect drastically the choices that are being made inside of those years. And that's where I think that I think that's where our tradition hits this conundrum is like, I, I, in theory, I love it. And I love their focusing time on this. And I think it says a lot about the fact that if we want to solve social issues, there are no direct answers. They require tremendous creativity and nuance and likely consistent transformation and consistent pivoting and readjusting because societies are way more complex than that. And I think that I think that's what our tradition is actually hinting at thousands of years ago, being like, here, here's an answer. Oh, wait, that's hard. Yeah, it's going to be hard. And if you want to figure it out, you have to be creative. I guess what I'm saying, and I probably didn't make it clear. If you looked at this as a individual obligation for Shemitah and. As in not all on the same cycle. And not on the same cycle, then it actually does work. You can make Daniel can go on his own sabbatical and he he can borrow a 48 year mortgage and the mortgage is intact and the lending institutions work. And the thing that's interesting is I see nothing that's been said that it couldn't be looked at individually. Uh, with, with the one exception, the only uh, by the way. I think that this is the brilliance of Torah that you can extract and and play with it this way because you're right. A majority doesn't say that. The only line that does is that the horn is sounded on the 50th year during Yom Kippur, a day where everyone is gathered together to inform them of the Jubilee year, which implies that all of this is on a really rigid calendar to pull it off. But I do agree with you. Outside of that, there is something to be said. What would this do to a society if we took this model but made it personal instead of, uh, you know, to this whole social constraint? Yeah, no, it'd be a very loud population. Yeah. Um, it would work a major thing, though, with all the land being given back. Sorry. Sorry. So if all the land is being given back and redistributed, 
that has to be done at one time. Correct. There, there's some there's some little complications here, though. Israel followed a little bit like the lease that HUC has on that land. Not all of Jerusalem is being reset on the same year. Right. Like that was a 99 year lease. Your 99 year lease violated the. Uh, I know. Isn't that wild? I Jerusalem know. gave them a lease longer than Jubilee. Wild. <laughs> Uh, I so appreciate this study and this wrestling with these different ideas. We, uh, we end this study together by starting with a prayer of blessing Torah with this blessing, not just of the words, but of the engagement that we could have. So we say together, Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Asher Kidshanu B'Mitzvotav Vitzivanu La'asok B'Divrei Torah.